0: Welcome
1: to the Punk Rock MBA Podcast.
0: What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA Podcast. Today's episode is with Tommy Rogers of Between the Buried Me. If you're listening to them, you probably know who they are. One of the bigger names in progressive metal. But although people think of them as a metal band, Tommy's origins are actually in the 90s vegan straight edge hardcore kind of scene, the same place that I came from. So I've always appreciated his kind of outlook on things because we share that common perspective. What we talk about in this episode is how he's been able to make a living for 20 years, 20 plus years playing, you know, kind of deliberately weird left of center music. They've never tried to make anything accessible and yet they've been able to make a decent living for themselves. So I'm always excited when I hear about anyone who's able to carve out a niche for themselves like that. We explain exactly how they do it. In this episode, we get into a lot of nitty-gritty details about how they do that. So if you are a fan of the band, or if you want to make your living off any other kind of niche in music or anywhere else, then I think you're going to like this one. Before we get into it, there's a couple ways you can support the show. Number one, you can buy some merch if you're interested in that. Number two, you can support us on Patreon if you really, really like us. And also number three, I guess this isn't directly related to the show, but I wanted to mention my social media coaching program that I've been doing for a while now. It's a fit for two kinds of people. What the program does is helps you build your audience and then turn that into some sort of business opportunity for yourself, whether that is selling a product or a service or anything like that. Number one, if you are a creator of some kind, like YouTuber, podcaster, graphic designer, illustrator, anything like that, it's a fit for you. Number two, if you are the founder or CEO or face of a company of some kind who wants to grow your personal brand as a way of growing your company, basically like the Gary Vaynerchuk kind of model, it is a perfect fit for people like that. I've worked with like an attorney a financial planner, founder of an executive coaching firm or product designer. So if that sounds like something you might be interested in, you can find a link to that in the show notes. And as always, I want to thank our producer and editor, Deanna Chapman, who makes it all happen. If you have any questions about how to get your own podcast going or how to grow a podcast that you already have, hit her up at the link in the description as well. And with that, let's get into the show. Mr. Rogers, welcome to the podcast. Hello. This Thanks is Thanks for having me. I have to put on my podcast voice.
2: Hey. Watch right. out for
0: break lines in the 405. Well, how's, uh, we, we talked about this a little bit. Uh, as far as personal stuff goes, but how is quarantine stuff going on the music side of things for you? Because, you know, obviously not touring is bad news for a lot of folks.
2: Yeah, it, it's it's weird. It takes a lot of adjusting. Um, it's just the first time, you know, I've been touring for over 20 or so years, you know, since I was 18 years old. I'm 39 now, so, you know it's this is like the first time in my life i don't have like something on the horizon as far as a tour i mean there's there's tentative things you know but as all musicians right now yeah who knows so yeah it's that aspect of it's very bizarre creatively it's been up and down you know when it first started i was quickly motivated and, and i think a lot of people wanted to like get a lot done but as we all kind of dealt with, it's easier said than done. And, and when you're kind of forced to be creative, it doesn't really work that way. And I don't know, I've I've definitely noticed that um, I can't just put on my, my creative shoes and make it happen if, if it's not there. So it, it's, it's been, I've had good and bad days just like everyone, but uh, you know, making it work.
0: Yeah. Well, you seem, you seem relative to other people that I know, you seem to be a little bit better at rolling with the punches with stuff like this and other people. Yeah. I don't, I don't have anything,
2: anyone to really compare to. You know, I, I, I'm honestly bad about keeping in touch with friends and other band guys. And so I don't know, I don't really know comparatively how I handle it compared to other people. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a day to day thing you know, I'm one of those people where I get a lot of work done in like quick bursts. Like I'll, I'll have a bad phase where I just can't get anything done, but I'm kind of constantly making to do lists and I have all these things kind of in my head that I need to get done. And then eventually there'll be some sort of spark or something where I just crush a lot of work all at once. And I I get a lot done in a short amount of time. So that, that's kind of how I've always worked. Um, You know, because a lot of times people, you know, they're like, how how do you do a lot of projects and write a lot of albums? And it's like, well, for me, it doesn't really seem like much work because it is like spaced out and a lot of it happens in in bursts. You know, so I don't know. I'm I'm always kind of, I guess, trying to have a strategy and kind of figure out where I want to go, you know, with the band and, you know, personally with my solo stuff. Well,
0: I forget who said this. I think it's so important to understand kind of what your working style is, there's somebody that came up with this idea of a marathon marathoner versus a sprinter. And I think most, I'm definitely a marathoner. Like, I do the same stuff every day. Like, I'm very, very like consistent. Uh, I think most creative people, though, are sprinters. And if you try to turn one into the other, it, it doesn't work. It pisses everyone off. And I think it's just important to understand which you are and just lean into that.
2: Yeah, I agree. And it, and it works for different things like for the business side of things you know that the daily emails and and doing all that i i'm very consistent with that it's like a, you know i wake up have my coffee get what i need to get done but when strictly speaking on a creative level it's very uh it's it's got to be you know it's kind of a un i can't really place when that moment is it just kind of it's a spark that happens it's so like, you know okay. what's going to happen eventually yeah yeah yeah, and that's, that's one thing I've learned over the years is that to not get freaked out when you get in those moments of, you know, not being inspired or, or you know, the last two or three weeks, you know, when I have worked on stuff, it, it was shit, you know. and <laughs> but it happens. I mean, part but of it process. happens. And that used to scare me. Like 10 years ago, I'd have been like, oh, my God, everything I've written in the last couple of weeks, I've scrapped or it's just kind of laughable and I wouldn't even send to anyone or you know do anything with and you know but you know at this point I'm I know that that's part of it and I'm totally okay with that
0: well the main thing I wanted to talk about with you is kind of what you said earlier is you've been able to make a living since you were 18 years old playing pretty weird music to a pretty niche audience which I think is something a lot of people would love to do Uh, so I just kind of wanted to unpack some of the things that were you know, that have enabled you to do that. And I guess the first thing I would be interested to hear is like when you decided that this was going to be your career and when you realized that it was actually kind of maybe going to work.
2: Well, Paul and I, Paul are a guitarist. We were living, you know, in this shitty apartment in Raleigh, North Carolina, you know, when we wrote the self-titled record. And, And at that point we were still Yeah, we we were still holding normal jobs and and doing that shit and, you know, struggling. We were poor, poor.
0: But these were just like shitty day jobs that you didn't care about, or were you trying to have careers?
2: Yeah, we didn't. We weren't trying to have careers. You know, we knew we wanted to play music. We didn't. You know, I think most bands, especially back then, you know, we were from the hardcore scene. So we never went into it like, oh, we're going to do this as a, you know, for a living. We're going to make money. You know, bands
0: in. You didn't make money. Like, unless you were Earth Crisis or VOD, who, as far as I was concerned, were, like, rock stars, who, in reality, probably didn't make any money. I know.
2: It's crazy. Like, I think those two bands in particular, I remember that tour and going to see the, that tour, and the, that was, like, the pinnacle for me. You know, like, these bands are fucking huge. But it, it wasn't this shitty club. Uh, I mean, it was probably... 300 people
0: right and it seemed huge it seemed so like fancy at the time
2: yeah and i'm sure tickets were six bucks or something so <laughs> right. it's not it's, it's not like they were making you know actual money or anything you know so you know back to us you know we were working these shitty jobs you know with no idea what the future was going to hold and then you know we finally when we started touring we we were always one of those bands that were never in debt you know we we always paid our debts before we took anything in and we quickly realized that if we were smart with our money and and never went outside of our means that we could actually make some money you know we were doing you know house show tours and stuff but we were selling merch you know we we always had merch we always you know, that's something since day one we've always taken you know pride in and, and this you know, is we've like
0: all, early 2000s then
2: yeah 2001 is when our first record came out but yeah we started kind of pushing it and touring in two thousand. So yeah, we always tried to, you know, always have new designs every tour and, you know, we still do that. And, you know, we quickly started making money and then eventually we dropped out of college, you know, quit our jobs and we're like, we're making enough I mean our rent was probably three hundred bucks a month or something and, you know, that's all we had. I didn't even have a cell phone back then. So I mean we just went for it. You know, I had a that, you know, chat with my parents and I'm sure Paul did as well and you know, that was 2001. I think was the last time we had a "quote unquote" real job. I mean, there was there was some hiccups along the way. Where, you know, the, I know a year I moved back in with my mom, and I was like, oh, I can't survive doing this. But you know, it's worked out somehow, and we're still kind of figuring it out. I think that's what's fun about you know the journey we've taken is we're still we're st- still learning, and we're still like. Not that we're struggling, but we're still struggling to figure out what works for us and, and and how we can make this work and how we can support our lifestyles and our families and all this by, like you said, playing to a niche audience and playing weird music.
0: You know? So has there ever been a point in which you reconsidered that? I mean, it almost seems like you play aggressively inaccessible, <laughs> weird music, you know. Have you ever thought like, oh, fuck, should we try to go broader? Or?
2: Well, I think we naturally do in a way went a little broader in kind of a a typical bt band fashion which is a little off to the left you know and i don't know we've we never i don't know i think through the years we we saw so many bands completely dishing their sound and trying to make it and you know because something is popular and it never worked and it just never it was never something that sat right with us you know We we were never the kind of band that was like Analyzing what worked and what didn't with other bands. We always just kind of like did our thing and it worked. Do you analyze what works and what didn't for your own band? Yeah. As far as business decisions, I don't think musically we never really did. You know, I think you always had that, you know, that little fan in the back of your head when writing, like, does this sound too much not like us or something? But, you know, one thing we quickly realized the more we experimented and the more we tried new things you know we were lucky enough to have a fan base that like you know celebrated that and they looked forward to that and we were we eventually became a band where people didn't know exactly what was going to happen next and that was you know as an artist that super motivating because you're not confined by any sound or anything you know and once we kind of realized that's the lane we're in we we knew that the sky's the limit and we just wanted to like stay excited as a band and i think that's why we've had such a long career is like we we're still excited about writing music and we still you know we still don't know what the next step is when we start writing you know and we surprise ourselves and you know it all comes down to the fan base that you know we're, we're lucky to have you know we we can do these things and i think a lot of bands can't do that and i think because we've always kind of had a core sound even now i think we still tap into that we haven't completely lost like what people like about our band
0: but i think you have kind of established your your brand as being genre agnostic like i think you could put out a minimal techno album and it might not be your most popular one but i think it would go over just fine
2: yeah i mean that's the thing i mean and i think with. You know, I have solo stuff and Dan has some projects and, you know, we're very lucky that we can, you know, I, I utilize my solo stuff to really try literally any and everything, you know, and and the fact th- that the fans are there and willing to listen is, is pretty tremendous. I would say the one time that I really felt kind of backlash was my Giles record from way, way back, which honestly is kind of a shit record, but <laughs> it, it was it was a very bizarre thing for me to even do and expect for anyone to like um but as i've talked a lot in previous interviews like i learned so much from that moment because that was the first time in my career that i i experienced extreme backlash from media and from fans um in a negative way you know up to that point i was kind of in my bubble where You know, you're in your twenties, like, oh, everybody likes my shit, you know, and and then there and then all of a sudden I released something where everybody was like, This is fucking terrible. You know. (laughs) But it was such a good thing for me, you know, and I, I still look back in that moment like I'm honestly not proud of that record, but I'm proud of attempting something totally off the wall that didn't work at all. And it made me really strong in the sense of, you know, handling backlash and people's opinions and all that stuff
0: that wasn't a
2: huge thing back then compared to now you know with the internet and all that
0: right was any of that like a reality check of like oh people aren't necessarily just gonna like anything i shit out
2: yeah because i think at that point like i was saying i was kind of in a bubble where i'm sure there was some arrogance involved in there like oh i can do the craziest shit and people are gonna love it you know where that wasn't the case at all You know, and not to mention it wasn't very good. I think if the record was good, maybe there could have been some chance. But I mean, at the end of the day of that era, we were like, you know, kind of like a grindcore, death metal, hardcore band. And, you know, I released a electro clash kind of techno record that was super
0: tongue in cheek. And yeah, didn't work. Yeah. Well, again, at least you tried it. There's there's something to that. Well, speaking of the Internet, so the Internet, you know, has been around since the beginning of the band. But, you know, back in the early 2000s, it was all these weird message boards and stuff like that. Obviously not what it is now. How has that changed your business as a band? I mean, I think it's so much easier now to reach a niche audience all over the world than it was back in the day.
2: Well, back in the day, it was just I mean, we. I think most bands of our generation were kind of late to the game as far as the internet goes and social media, because it wasn't something we grew up with. We we were kind of blind to how important it, it is. And, you know, we obviously, everyone knows now, but I mean, back then it was word of mouth. It was, I mean, I remember, a, a, you know, blogs and a little bit of message board stuff. But I mean, in the very early days, it was all, you know, touring and playing these house shows and And connecting with bands you know we had a lot of core bands like red and and bands like in our world that we always toured with and you know kind of latch onto their fans and you just you just kind of grind it out and, and you build your base that way where now you know you're spreading it out through a digital digital means and you know that that just wasn't the case back then you know i remember you know we did you know the cdr thing and the demo thing and all that you know where where now you can record a, a good sounding demo and and get it out there tonight if you want, you know, it's,
0: it's a different world. It's wild to me that people complain about that, about like oversaturation and this and that. It's like, well, dude, which do you want? Like, do you want it to be hard or not? Cause if you want to go back to the days where it cost five grand to record and put out your demo, like feel free to hop in the time machine, but I don't want it.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, yeah, there's a lot more now, but, yeah back then you were kind of preaching to your friends you know it's like hey hey, check out this demo or you know in high school you give it out to people and you know hope that they like it and give it to their friends you know
0: and now people are upset that they only have ten thousand monthly listeners or something and i remember like you know back in the day it would be a big deal for a band to sell 707 inches i would consider that a hit yeah
2: i mean yeah Back then seven hundred would be insane.
0: And to now turn up your nose at ten thousand,
2: you know, I mean I think the difference is like we were talking earlier, like we were never you know, bands like us and you didn't do it because you were you were trying to get big or make all this money. You know, you did it because you just wanted you wanted to play music with with your buds, you know. And I think there was there was nothing to compare it to. Where mm-hmm. now there's a lot of data that goes along with success, you know, quote unquote success online especially so these people you know they're in some chunk of a genre and they see other bands in that chunk and and they see you know their numbers and they see their you know fans and so they have something to compare it to where we didn't have we didn't have anything to compare it to we were just you know besides those earth crisis and vod shows you know that was really all because we couldn't compare it to you know going to a a big metal like a metallica show you know you had coc or something like that but that was still you know at ziggy's and winston with 500 people you know so we didn't really have comparisons and i think that's what's so weird now is that constant comparison to you know what other bands are doing what other people are doing and i think that's what people are probably struggling with the most is and i think even on our level and you know people you know even some dudes in the band you know it's hard to not compare yourself and and be like this band's doing that why are we not doing that like as anybody that's been involved in this
0: for a long time it's not
2: how it always works you know sometimes people know people like it's just
0: well and also just because someone else is doing it doesn't mean it's a good idea or that they're being successful at it
2: yeah or that it works for your band I mean that was something we learned especially on OzFest in 2006 when the traveling you know Fest thing was so big we realized instantly that wasn't really a world that works for us at all you know and that whole summer was kind of misery for us but kind of like the giles thing earlier it was something we had to learn and you know it it motivated us and kind of steered us in a direction like okay what are our fans like
0: was the issue there just that the Ozfest type of fan is not into what you're doing not
2: into it i mean still to this day we're not the best outdoor band you know, mm-hmm. we kind of, we kind of look weird outside. Like we kind, not you know, we need some sort of production to look cool. <laughs>
0: Playing at you know, 3 p.m. in a yeah, parking lot is fucking tough. It is, man. You have to really just be an insane live
2: band. You know, we've always kind of been a band that focuses on performing really well rather than, you know, putting on a crazy show. And so, you know, there was like 15 minute, you know, set changes, we we played three songs, I think, because our songs are long mm-hmm. and nobody connected with it, you know, because it was just a small little glitch in the day for them. So I don't know. It, it was just the vibe all around for most of the bands was, I don't know, what from what we could tell was just like this arrogant, like, we're, we're going to fucking make it this, you know, this. And we were just like, we're not, this isn't how we are at all. Like, this isn't what. You know, we've never had that get big quick mindset and we never expected it. There's always been kind of like a a slow strategy for us that, you know, that fest really showed that it just wasn't working for us to go that route.
0: I feel like that was kind of the last era of when metal in particular, and I say metal versus hardcore or punk, that was the last era of when metal had this like, much more commercial upside. And I think now that's not really true. I'd say they're all pretty much on equal footing now. But back then there was like a difference between the metal bands that had their kind of nose up in the air and were going to get big and had all this money behind them versus the rest of the bands that were more DIY. Definitely the case in the 90s. I feel like that was kind of the last of it.
2: Yeah, because I think that was one of the last years maybe of that fest. And then you know, shortly after, I think a lot of the fests started Folding
0: up a little bit. And Warp Tour has never had that kind of vibe. Yeah,
2: yeah. We've never done Warp Tour or anything. Um, I, I believe we got an offer once, but it was probably at the point where we're like, I don't think.
0: I mean, Warp Tour has never paid particularly well. That's not why you do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. An interesting thing on this note is that there's a category of bands, I would say, like, you know, you guys, Converge, Periphery, Dillinger, those sort of bands. If you look at the numbers, are not huge bands. And there's a sort of a perception, like you think of Converge as being a giant band, but they're not. And neither is BT Bam. And yet you guys make a comfortable living, like doing what you want creatively. And I think that is such an underrated kind of strategy that, as you said, people have feel like this pressure to go big. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to enjoy yourself more.
2: Yeah, and it's and that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to last,
0: or that you'll even you'll even be more successful. Yeah, I know, because I
2: I mean, there's lots of you know, quote unquote, bigger bands that don't really make much money mm-hmm. because a they s- sign some shitty deal or you know their management's taking it or you know there's a lot of factors. I mean, it's not just the you know the the amount of sales and 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 you know how many people you're bringing to the door. It's it's also about like where you're putting your money. How much do you get to keep? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, we kind of learned some hard lessons, you know, doing it through the years, you know, about all that, but you know, that's a big part of it. And that's how bands that aren't that big, you know, stay afloat and make a living from It's because they learn how to kind of guide the business where it works for them, you know,
0: and longevity.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think all those bands you mentioned have done that very well.
0: Yeah. If you guys want to keep doing this into your sixties, then I believe you totally can. Whereas there's other bands that may have peaked higher commercially, but they're done after five years.
2: Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, that's something we saw at Ozfest too. Like these bands that, you know, are on top of the world, they, they didn't last. I mean, you know, it's, it's crazy how the how quickly the rise and fall is a lot of times with the, the big successes, um, I don't know it just it doesn't ever really work especially in, in our world because you know the fan moves on you know mm-hmm. so you got you got to kind of build it where the fan wants to see what's happening next
1: and not want to move on you know hey there i am johnny christ from revenge sevenfold and i've got a podcast called drinks with johnny you're gonna want to check out i sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life from professional wrestlers to actors comedians fighters musicians everything in between i'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it so if that sounds like something you're into go check out drinks with johnny streaming everywhere now ready for a head-bangingly good time dive into the world of heavy metal with the brutally delicious podcast here we don't just talk music we welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard hard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the brutally delicious podcast. <laughs>
0: Go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. Are there any particular pieces of advice that you might have to somebody as far as like if if they want to pursue this kind of a career, deepening a relationship with a niche audience?
2: Well, I think first and foremost, I think the audience can tell what kind of music you're writing. And and when I say that I mean how genuine it is i think you can tell the second you're writing music to sound like somebody else or or you're kind of being yourself and i think that's for us at least that's the best way to like have people connect with you and i think something that's worked for us is we've 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 always we've never pretended to be something we're not we've we've always been you know just five kind of normal guys that like to write these these songs you know and that's at the end of the day what we've always been and i think through that our fans have latched on to like i don't know i guess we're kind of normal people you know and and they like that aspect of it and they can relate to it and i don't know you just i think obviously first and foremost is you have to write good music you know or good to at least your fans perspective and um and 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 not taking for granted you know i i know there's times throughout my life where i've kind of taken it for granted and you know i think with the quarantine and all that shit is like a perfect time for perspective from a from someone's in a band's point of view to kind of look back and be like shit maybe we should have cared a little more about the fan and the touring and you know because as anybody that's done it in a long time you have those moments of like fuck i'm tired of doing this sometimes you know so yeah. I don't, I don't, I mean, as far as advice, I think it's just be yourself and, uh, and don't expect anything. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to work hard, you know, that's, you know, as you talk about in a lot of your stuff, it doesn't just happen. You have to fucking, you have to work, you know, and, and we've always worked and it still doesn't come. It doesn't just knock on your door. Opportunities don't just knock on your door and you got to fight for it sometimes.
0: Well, on that note, one common thread I would say between all the bands I mentioned and I've worked with a lot of bands in this kind of scene in some capacity or another and all of them have one thing in common, at least the people I've dealt with, is way higher than average professionalism. And I don't mean like, you know, you show up wearing a fucking tie. I mean like our podcast today was supposed to start at ten AM and you were on at ten A.m. on the dot. And, you know, like Matt from Periphery, if you email him, he's probably gonna reply in three minutes and if he's awake. You know, and, you know, Kurt from Converge, same thing. Like, these people are all professional. They don't fuck around. They're going to do what they say they're going to do. And that may seem like an obvious thing, but in the world of music, it's definitely not.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's very true. I mean, and like I was saying earlier about being in debt and, you know, there were so many bands we would tour with, you know, and, and you hear they have, oh, we, oh, we're like four tours behind and merch payments. And
0: it's like how... That's a big hole to dig out of. Yeah.
2: I mean, how does that happen? You can't like every, you have to be, like you said, punctual. You have to pay things on time. You, you know, it's, it's real life. This isn't, you know, it is fun at first when it's not your full-time job, but if you want to make that leap, you have to treat it with professionalism, you know? And, you know, that's something I learned early on, you know, the, the, the email thing correspondence, you know, replying quickly and, you know, and and being honest, and you know, even if you have to say no to things, know how to do that properly, and not be afraid to say no, but do it in a way where you're you're not a dick, and you know, you just learn all these things. But yeah, it's it, all that stuff's so important,
0: especially when it relies on trust and really. I mean, that's really what it is at the end of the day. Is your audience trusts you to put out shit that will that they'll enjoy and to you know, have a good experience when you go on tour and stuff. And every time you fuck up, you're burning a little bit of that trust. And that's the same in in the industry side of things too. You know, there's plenty of people and artists I can think of that, I'm I, I I appreciate very much as a fan, and I may like them as a person, but I won't work with them because it's like, well, I, we all love this guy, but we know that we're going to have to follow up with him eight times to get him to do the smallest thing, and it's just I just can't run a business that way.
2: Yeah, it's and from a I don't know, just being a, a guy in a band and a huge fan of musicians, sometimes it's scary. You know, if you get a tour with somebody that you've grown up you know, loving or something, there's always that moment of like, God, what if they're just an asshole? What if, you know, what all these things, what if they're not professional at all? Like, because we've all dealt with that. So I think you just always got to keep the fan perspective in the back of your mind. I mean, I remember meeting I'm not going to say any names, but I remember meeting like an idol mine when I was probably 15, you know, at a show and he was a dick to me. And I still remember that I'm 39 now, you know, so it's like and and that will ever be ingrained in my head. So I, I think you always kind of have to think about that kind of stuff.
0: I think about that every time I reply to a comment or DM and, and there's some times where I've probably gotten it wrong and been an asshole to somebody. So if you're listening and I was rude to you. I apologize. It's something I'm always, you know, trying to get better at. You know, if someone is obviously trying to be a dick to me, then I guess I don't feel too bad about that's it. That's different. It's
2: not like, you know, when when I met this person, it's not like the 15 year old fan in me was being a dick to them. Probably a little bit annoying. Yeah, but yeah, that's I'm okay. Sure. You're 15. but it wasn't. But it wasn't like I said, hey, you guys sounded like shit tonight. I wish you would have played this instead of that.
0: So you you weren't like a European then? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, you were good but uh new album is shit compared to <laughs> yeah well it's the your, European personality disorder is real but uh, you know I, I love th- it I've I, grown to love it <laughs> I, I mean really what other choice it. do you
2: have you know I know it gotta, used to offend me but now i I embrace it
0: I they don't you know they don't mean it and and to that point like you know I get messages or comments like that sometimes and sometimes I'll halfway type out some shitty reply to them or' like you know what that's that's just dumb like I know this person didn't mean to be rude to me they what they said was kind of rude or dumb but I know that they didn't mean it that way and this could really you know this could this could really bum them out or it can make them really happy so if I ever catch myself kind of going in that direction I stop I start over and reply with something nice instead and I have 100% of the time I'm glad that I did that
2: it's tough it's a tough thing to navigate I guess because they're, I don't know, I mean, we've all done it. And I think there is a time and place to be a total dick. <laughs> I mean, it's rare. I don't know, but it's rare. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's just, I don't know, just like anything. I mean, if someone's being verbally abusive to you, then tell them to fuck off. But other than that, probably not a good idea. And even then, it's still oftentimes a bad idea like in public, you know, you think about all these various different like freakouts that people have had, you know, or for, like one of my favorite examples. And he was right. He was justified to do it. Do you remember when uh, Andy Biersack went off on that guy at Golden Gods? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's one of my favorite things of all time. The guy totally deserved it. But at the end of the day, Andy ended up looking worse than that guy did.
2: Yeah. That guy, they're like, they don't know his name or. Yeah. Right.
0: Andy was the one who lost his temper up on stage. Again, I completely agree with him. It was totally justified, but at the end of the day, it didn't help him.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think when in doubt, just don't even say or do anything, I guess. That's probably the best advice regarding that.
0: And that is not easy for me because I have a little bit of a temper when people say things. I don't get mad when people are rude to me. I get mad when I feel like someone asked a stupid question or said something dumb to me that reflected that they didn't pay attention to what I said. That's what makes me mad, which is such a dumb, like dickhead thing to like, it's just such a, it's, I'm embarrassed to even say it, but it's the truth. Hey, I
2: mean, I think, Hey, that's important to, to know those weaknesses and to know that you do struggle with that. You know, I think it's taken me years to not be able to comment or to even look through comments. And, you know, I've tried to get better at that. And I think as a band, we do pretty good with that. Um, just not not bringing it to light because I think most of the time when you do get aggressive back, it just like with that other guy you said at the Golden Gods, it just brings attention to you, not them. Yeah, you
0: know, and I and
2: that's good for nobody.
0: Well, how about getting along with people in the band or other bands? This is a thing that you know doesn't get talked about a lot, but I think a lot of us, you know, we didn't get into this kind of music because we're like normal chill happy people for the most part like most of us have at least some sort of uh, an issue with communication and getting along with people and stuff maybe some more than others but you guys have been a band for 20 years now or whatever maybe a little bit more how do you get along with a group of people for that long as far as the band
2: yeah man i don't know i mean part of it is luck i mean we really lucked out with the the lineup um you know in, in the early days we we had a few years where you know you know paul and i are the only original guys and we we went through quite a few members for a little bit before alaska alaska is when you know we have the lineup we have now and you know we just really lucked out with with the guys we have because it's not like we knew them i mean we we knew them through shows and through other bands and stuff but you know when you join a band and you're in a band together and you're touring in vans
0: and all that you're on top of each other you're yeah, It's a very, very close quarters, you know, so. And you really don't know what someone's going to be like. Exactly. Until you're in that situation with them.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's basically like getting in four different relationships at once and just hoping it works out, you know, and living together. <laughs> but, uh <laughs> which is crazy to think about. But, yeah, I mean, from the get go, I, I think, you know, we, we just clicked as a group. And then, you know, as we got older, we learned. I think space is always very important. We've, we've never been the kind of band where the second we get off tour, we're hanging out or living together. Um, You know, Paul and I lived together a lot back in the day, but I mean, I think it's, it's healthy to just have that space and to know, you know, over the years you, you kind of learn like when people are in certain moods or, you know, when people need space and, you know, just we've remained friends. I think a lot of bands aren't friends. Mm -hmm. You know, we we've met a, and toured with lots of bands that don't get along that can't stand to be around each other you know but we generally get along and you know like for instance right now we haven't been around each other in forever and we miss each other you know i think it's it's healthy to you know feel that way and to you know be in relationships like that and you know we just lucked out to have that work out and and when and not only on the touring side we have healthy relationships on the writing side. We have healthy relationships and that is just as important or more. Tell me what that means. We work together as a team. You know, we all write creatively. I can write. If I think it works for the band, I'm not afraid to present it. You know, it can be something that at first listen wouldn't make a bit of sense for between the bear to me, but there's, I'm not afraid to present that idea. And, and, and we're all in that boat, you know, what, we're not the the kind of group that shoots each other down. Nobody is a dictator when it comes to writing. You know, we're all we all have a purpose, which is to create a good album and good songs. You know, and and a lot of bands aren't like that. A lot of bands it is one or two people that's running the show,
0: and you know, guys can't.
2: You know, they can't. Someone they gets want, mad they, because
0: my part in this song is really boring. I don't do anything in this whole song
2: yeah or i i want to write but they won't let me you know i've heard that before which is for us is crazy because you know we we've always embraced i think that's why our music is so diverse is because we do have five different personalities and brains working together and we've learned over the years that it's not a big deal if you know i'll let's say i write a section that's near and dear to me that feels great but when it's you know the, the song's done that section is not feeling right. It, it doesn't work. It's not working for the song. It gets cut, you know, that stuff happens and, and you can't take it personally,
0: you know, just sometimes, you know, that's how music works. This is a really specific question, but I'm asking because one thing I've noticed in the studio a lot, like with producers in particular, is they can be really brutal with how they say things like, you know, that sucked. This part of the song is shit. You know, just really harsh, and which is not the way to go about it. It's not, and it, every time they do that, I'm just like, "Oh my god, I can't believe that!" Like you thought that was the right way to give somebody feedback. Can you talk about how if if someone else in the band wrote a part that you didn't think was right, like how would you how would you deliver that feedback? You could
2: either just straight out say, "I don't think this section," you know, you, "I wouldn't say like their name." Like oh this section so and so wrote, like, but, may, <laughs> but 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 maybe like it, you know if you have a six minute track like oh at the one fifteen to one thirty five mark I don't think that section's working or it doesn't flow well into the next part or or I think I think that maybe the, that's where the track loses steam or you know something like that.
0: So don't make it personal for one.
2: Yeah, don't make it personal because it's not about what that person wrote. It's about does it work for the song? Because I think anybody that writes a lot of music there's something kind of internally that when you listen back, even even let's say solo stuff, because it's all me. It's like when I listen back, you instantly know if something doesn't sit right or, a, or even a whole song. Like sometimes I'll record a whole record and I'll be sitting, you know, in the basement at, at Jamie, or the guy we, we recorded with, and I'll be sitting there by myself. And, and then when it gets to a track, every time I listen to it, the album feels weird. It's like, I don't think the track should be there or I don't think the track should even exist. But you got to be willing to admit that to yourself. Exactly. It's all about like getting to that honest place and not everything is not, I mean, I know it feels dear because you spent time on it. I mean, trust, I think with anything creative, you're going to spend a lot of time on things that don't work. You know, I'll, I'll spend five, six hours on a part. And then the next morning I listen to it and it's, unlistenable.
0: I would say with my videos, I end up editing out 20 to 30% of what I recorded and I've never regretted it. I've never been like, ah, fuck, I wish I would have left that line in.
2: Yeah. And I think the more you do it, the more you realize editing, the more you
0: edit, the better it normally is. I always err on the side. If I'm, if I'm on the fence at all about whether a particular part should be in there, I cut it. Exactly. Yeah. The on the fence thing is
2: very critical. I think, I think, In the past, if something bothered me, I would kind of hold it in, even on a personal thing. Let's say I'm listening back to a vocal performance, and there's one little thing, and I'm like, I'll probably get over that. That's fine. You won't, but I I won't. Yeah, ten years later, I'm like, I should, I should have fixed that. I should have. So if something, if if something just creeps up in your brain to tell you maybe that's not right do something
0: with it youtube's a little different because i can i'll put out a new video next week so it doesn't have to be perfect a, a record you have to live with for the rest of your life so it's a little bit different
2: it's technically your legacy it's gonna be around longer than you are you know so i don't know and yeah i think it's just healthy to be able to accept that and realize that everything you listen to the people didn't just write it and put it out I mean, not everything is a Bob Dylan song where he can sit down and just record something. And it's,
0: you know, it's it's history, you know? There's those freaks that can just bang it out. Like, I, I always talk about her, but, you know, one of my favorite artists is uh, Charlie XCX. And she's written, like, Billboard top 10 songs in, like, half an hour. Or written and recorded her vocals for top 10 songs in an hour and a half. Yeah, it's crazy. Good for her, but the, most of us are not like that.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it, and it, it all depends on... I mean, we were talking earlier about what works for you and your band. I mean, for instance, with BT Bam, it's a big process to, to get a song done. You know, it's it's a very dense thing. You know, there's a lot going on. It's, You know, we we spend as much or more time in pre-production and analyzing the track and fixing the track before we ever get in the studio. That
0: I, I have a question about this, then. and I, I don't normally get into the details of music on this show, but this is something that... I want the audience to think about for anybody who's who makes music arrangement, yeah, and talk about how important that is. Like that that it's more than just having a cool riff. Well, yeah, I mean, I'll, it really depends
2: on the kind of music, honestly.
0: But in any kind of music, like you're not just gonna loop something for six minutes like the song needs to have movement things coming and going adding little things and i think people don't oftentimes hear that stuff consciously but it's there especially like with your stuff which is these songs are very long how do you think about arrangement to keep a song moving for that long without adding another part necessarily
2: well our our writings changed quite a bit like in the past it was kind of like a building block like we have this riff and we want to get to this riff. How do we make that? Then we take that riff and go, and it's kind of constantly evolving of just a shitload of fucking riffs, you know? And that's why our old material is so crazy is because it never repeats. It's, you know, it's a pretty intense kind of puzzle, I guess. But now, I mean, a big part of it is because of so many people writing and, you know, it's just about putting together, you know, all our ideas and, and sometimes, as far as arranging you know someone will write a 5 minute song on their own and you know the band will take that 5 minutes and kind of turn it into something new because we all have kind of ideas of where we think it should go so it's it's honestly tough to talk about arrangement for us because it changes so much mm-hmm. and er- every song it's it's honestly very different i think each person needs to find out how writing works for them and and for us it's a very it's an over analytical process. Like we really have to analyze and with music like ours, if everything's not in the right place, it Mm -hmm. sounds like a fucking mess, you know, because so much is going on. And when you have a section with, you know, six different guitars, tracks going on, keyboards, strings, you know, percussion, auxiliary stuff, like plus four vocal parts happening. Like you have to, you need to make room for all that somehow. And so, if you're trying to do the the bold, dense thing, you have to really know how to craft it in a way where it's going to be listenable. Mm -hmm. You know, so, but at the same time, I, you know, for my solo stuff, for instance, I take a totally different approach where I will write a song off a riff. But like you said, it's not like I can just repeat a riff and that's a song. I have to create movement and somehow, you know, keep... The listener interested and 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 make you know either if the riff does repeat over and over and over i have to create things around it to mm-hmm. make it kind of evolve into something else be it vocals or you know percussion or drums or keys or whatever so it's just i don't know i'm i'm not i'm not the bit i can't teach someone how to like write a song i don't know i d- i just know what works for me and i don't really know how to explain it, it just kind of happens a lot of the times
0: the idea of arrangement seems to be something that metal bands in particular don't really understand. Probably because there isn't a lot of arrangement in a lot of the stuff that they, they listen to, where it's like I I listen to a lot of rap and pop. And with that stuff, for example, like the Katy Perry song, TGIF, like if you listen to that song, it is the same loop the entire song, but you it doesn't seem like it because they did so much of what you said. There's so much happening around that loop. That I listened to I was like, oh, this is the same like four bar loop the entire song and I never I've heard the song dozens of times and I never noticed that. Whereas with a lot of metal bands the default is write a new riff. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it should be intentional. Otherwise you get riff salad. Exactly. And I think
2: production's such a big point in that you know, to that point is that you know, if you listen to a session of a pop song, for instance, you'll you'll see that loop or whatever but you'll see how much is going on as far as production around that so you aren't focusing on the fact that you know this loop is happening the entire song you know it's not just it's not just about the parts you're writing it's also about the way they're recorded and the way they're mixed and you know there's there's just so much to that and i think you know a good thing pop music does is the actual stuff that's written is very bare bones and mm-hmm. simple it's just the way it's produced that makes it very listenable to most people and, and and keeps it interesting you know and so, it's tough to do that sometimes with metal I, I mean a lot of it you know when you're dealing with guitars that are in the forefront you know that that distorted guitar takes over most of the you know the sound the that's spectrum, coming yeah. yeah the whole spectrum you know so it's it's a little I don't know. It's it's hard to kind of apply apply that to to really aggressive music.
0: Getting back to the idea of uh, giving and receiving feedback that we were talking about before, because I think this is such an important topic for people in any kind of creative field. When somebody, you know, I I I think you probably just don't have these people in the band anymore, is my guess. But when you have dealt with somebody in the past, whether that's in the band or a tour mate or something that is really sensitive about getting feedback or, or approaching them. Like those people that like, you're like, Oh God, I got to talk to this guy. He's going to be butthurt about anything I say to him. How do you deal with that? Um, I think it's just like
2: dealing with anyone in any aspect of your life when it comes to that. It's just sitting in either sitting them down and just kind of explain your side of it. You know, just being totally honest. Like this had, if, if you know it's going to hurt their feelings, be like, this has nothing to do with, You know, nothing you wrote was for instance bad or or is is shit or whatever you know there's no reason you should feel that way i've honestly never had to do that you know because like you said the the past members are the writing process wasn't as complete band involved as it is now um back then but yeah i mean it's still you don't want to hurt people's feelings ever
0: what about the people who are overly sensitive you know there's always these bands where it's like if you're on tour with them and they're gonna get mad if you put a single piece of your shit six inches on their side of you know that kind of thing how do you deal with that well hopefully if you're able to have a tour manager they can
2: deal with that properly if you don't hopefully you have someone in the band that can sensibly talk to other human beings in a way that's not going to cause a lot of confrontation I mean but just a heart-to-heart and kind of explaining how ridiculous it is for them to ex- to expect that but without being like that's fucking ridiculous man yeah you know kind of look at it from our perspective like this is kind of weird right yeah you know, i mean because for instance you know we toured with a band i don't want to throw anybody on the bus but you know they were kind of like a, a big hot shot metal band and they still do well but you know we we were playing not huge clubs but they you know they were from A metal community where you didn't share gear you Mm -hmm. didn't you didn't strike your kit you know we were playing i remember particularly we were playing on this really small ass stage and you know they wouldn't move any of their gear and their tour manager wouldn't let us move any of our gear because there was a local band and the Mm -hmm. local band literally would have they wouldn't have fit on the stage it was impossible and it was this huge thing we got in a fight with their tour manager like man we're not fucking this band over and you know his point of view was who cares they're a local band but like well we've been that local band yeah. i don't know if you i don't know if you've ever experienced that world but that's somewhere we come from where you do look out for everyone playing and you do if you know in the, the old, old days in the in the hardcore scene for us like bands would show up with no gear and they would just borrow <laughs> <Right>. it <laughs> you know it was crazy so i don't know it's just it's a different you know upbringing and i uh, it yeah i mean sometimes it that's the only time I can really think of it getting
0: hostile. But, um, it's a good idea to, that, that's actually a really good insight to, to give it to the tour manager or someone else, if possible, that's not always the case, but you know, I think it's a good idea in general for the people, you know, I call those people the shit umbrella cause that's kind of their job is to take the shit and shield everyone under the umbrella from it. And typically I'm the shit umbrella and you know, that's what, that's what our job is. Like, Come to us and say, hey, here's the deal. These guys are getting really butt hurt every time we do this. Can you talk to them? And we're in that job for a reason where we'll go talk to them and go, hey, I, you know, it seems like it rubbed you the wrong way when X happened. I totally understand. I would feel that way, too. But here's the thing. Like, it's really cramped. We'll do our very best to keep it out of your space. But, you know, I, I hope you understand if occasionally some things might get a little bit, you know, in your way. We apologize. Yeah,
2: and sometimes I think a good approach is if the tour manager thing is not working, get get some... I mean, for us, for instance, if something like that's happening, and we're just like, fuck it. As a band or as like maybe like Paul and I, because we've been around the longest I, or something, I don't know, we would walk up to dudes and just talk to them ourselves. Be like, listen, I know our tour managers talked to you about this, but we're coming to you as, as the band, as like your your fellow musicians like let's work together we got a long tour ahead of us let's make this fucking happen you know because nobody wants to be on a tour for a month and a half where something is horrible every day you know and and as as a band headlines you know we have to think about that as well you know if if we're doing something unknowingly that's affecting you know another band I want them to say
0: something nice. them to us. Fuck that. You've earned the right to be an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Quit being a coward. Well, last thing I wanted to ask you about, because I know people want to hear about it, and, and we've talked about it a little bit, is kind of the, the scene that you guys came from, that old like North Carolina like vegan straight-edge metalcore kind of scene, which was a really interesting moment in time. I don't know what the scene is like now, but I remember back then, there was just this weird little hot spot of those bands and it was such a cool thing it was cool uh, I'm
2: very uh it's, I'm very fortunate to you know have been through it and kind of grow up and met the, the people I have and I don't know it was it was so small I think that's what you know when I really think back about the shows or see pictures from you know these these very important shows in my mind you know there was 50 people 40 people at the issue right. you know as a as a very small community
0: like people care way more about day of suffering now than they did in 1999 yeah like exponentially. I, I i saw
2: that you know i saw them you know i only saw them one time with brother's keeper and and it was i mean it's still one i just such a mind-blowing show i, I saw and, them at a
0: fest in indiana and there was maybe 25 people watching him at a fast. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, nobody. Because nobody really cared about him. I mean, in North Carolina, there was a small group that did, but outside of that, you know, that was that. And, yeah, luckily, people are kind of realizing, hey, Day of Suffering started something.
0: Yeah, and I want to be clear. I'm not making fun of them or putting it down or anything. I just, it's interesting to me how there's these special moments in time that in the moment, you kind of don't understand that they're special. And then looking back, people look, you know, are like, Actually, that was pretty cool. They were doing this twenty years ago.
2: Yeah, they were, you know, incorporating Morbid Angel and hardcore. You know, it's it was yeah, and, and you guys a lot were, of bands were doing.
0: super, super ahead of the curve on that too. Can you talk about kind of how I? I always talk about this in my videos, but I, I don't feel like I've really gotten the point across about how just completely unheard of that was at the time to bring in that kind of real death metal and progressive kind of stuff into hardcore.
2: It really was. I mean, I remember because i I was in a band called from here on there was you know kind of a you know i love turmoil and that was kind of like we were kind of that world um i remember playing with nile and it was horrible for us you know it was constant heckling i mean those two worlds just didn't coexist i you know i remember seeing life of agony with carcass and life of agony got heckled the entire show you know the singer was horrible things were yelled at him and yeah
0: I can guess what they were.
2: <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. And so from a very, and that I was probably 16, you know, so f- from a very early age, I kind of saw this and it was very weird to me because I grew up a metalhead. You know, I, I, that was what I grew up on was like strictly metal. And then I found hardcore and that was what I connected to in high school. And, you know, I just fell in love with the community involved around it because there was no metal community for me from where I lived, And if it, if there was, it wasn't anything I wanted to be part of so i don't know and i think most of us kind of had that same experience where we grew up listening to things like morbid angel and cannibal courts but we also loved sick of it all and we loved fucking earth crisis and you know and all this stuff and so i think it was just the love of all the the, these kind of music that is very similar but was as a society looked at way way you know something that didn't belong at all and and we kind of didn't agree with that i guess and you know, Prayer for Cleansing, for instance, you know, I wasn't in the band when they wrote their, you know, their full length, but I was friends with them and, and we all were obsessed with Cradle of Filth, you know, and, and you, when you listen to that record, you can hear that influence.
0: And zero people in hardcore were listening to Cradle of Filth then.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like, it wasn't just something that was heard of at all back then. And, and like you said, with the, with the prog stuff, I remember even BT when I started playing keyboards that was
0: you can't do that
2: and people made fun of me all the time like i mean notoriously in europe one time i was setting up and this guy just goes keyboards are gay like, <laughs> sounds about right yeah like i mean we just always got shit for stuff like, and then it slowly like became completely normal and you know i remember when i mean vod for instance people were weirded weirded out that he sung like mm-hmm. when bands started singing in hardcore it was such a weird thing and and then luckily there was that kind of evolution of the emo side of thing kind of crept in the hardcore. And it it was kind of cool to see a lot of that evolve, you know, on on all different sides of it. And, you know, luckily we were kind of in, in the metal side of it because that's just what we all grew up on and loved, you know.
0: Well, the lesson to me, the takeaway for anybody listening to this is like, if there's something cool going on, support it now. Like don't wait until 10 or 15 years later after they all broke up and had to get jobs and stuff. like
2: I know, it's so it weird. Like, the guy that does merch for us, he's, I think, 23. And he's, you know, very in touch with what's going on with, you know, the hardcore scene right now. And it is mind-blowing, like you said, how much of those bands are still talked about and people love them.
0: I hear people bring up Disembodied all the I time know, in my comments. And Disembodied yeah. are great, but, like, I again, I saw them with, like, Overcast in maybe Candyria or something which is an amazing lineup that people would like shit themselves over now 40 people there in cleveland
2: yeah those bands were making two thousand dollars a year f- as a band
0: totally <laughs> like like it's crazy I-, I remember one of them we booked one of their shows in cleveland and one of those bands wanted 300 for a guarantee and we were like what the fuck like who do you think you are yeah that's so crazy to think about.
2: Yeah, and I mean, and people are like, "Where all these bands reuniting?" It's like they've never made a dollar or played to more than like eight people. Yeah, let them experience it. Fuck, <laughs> like, don't criticize the fact that they're coming back, especially if they can pull it off. You know, so I mean, that uh, that's I mean, that's obviously why a lot of these bands are coming back. They they realized that people are connecting with those songs and you know, it's awesome. A lot of that stuff still holds up. So
0: absolutely cool. Well, I will let you go. I'm sure you got a lot of other stuff to do today, but thank you so much for joining any last words or anything you want to plug or mention before I let you go.
2: Yeah, we're trying as all bands are trying to figure we're, we were supposed to do a 20 year tour this, this year doing our album, the great Misdirect, in full playing full set only band. I mean, two full sets and we were really looking forward to it. We're trying to figure out if it's going to happen in 2021. So yeah, we're just trying to stay busy. I have a new solo EP that came out a couple weeks ago. So check that out. And yeah, we're, we're always working on stuff. So just keep checking and thanks for caring. Keep checking.
0: Yeah. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you if you want to help the show there's a couple things that you can do first of all share it on social media if you share it tag us tag finn mckenty that's me and tag deanna chapman that's a producer second thing you can do if you really 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 love us and really want to support us you can support us on patreon there's a link to that in the show notes you can leave a review on apple podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this or you can do none of that and you can just sit at home thinking about how awesome this podcast is that works too Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time.
1: Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a die-hard metalhead or just curious... Join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob Podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh, yeah, and pizza we're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.